0: Welcome to the Dental Code Advisor podcast, hosted by Practice Boosters coding experts, Dr. Charles Blair and Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. Interpretations of the CDT codes represent the opinions of our experts. For the latest CDT codes and official interpretations, contact the American Dental Association or visit ADA.org. You are responsible for your own use of the CDT codes. Tune in now for timely information regarding dental coding. Hey there, and welcome to episode five of the Dental Code Advisor podcast. With me today, I've got Tiffany Wesley. She was with us last time, talked a lot about coordination of benefits. We talked about how it was created, some nuances on the order to submit claims, the primary versus secondary versus tertiary versus quaternary, all this good stuff. Number one missed billing step, which go back and listen to that if you missed that. Some common myths about coordination of benefits. We're going to continue our talk about that today. We've got a lot of material to cover. I want to jump right into it. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Grobmeyer, and Tiffany, welcome into the studio today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Speaking of how plants coordinate, we did want to correct one error in our last podcast. I think, Tiffany, you had one spot where you had changed something or said something wrong.
1: Yeah, so we were talking about traditional coordination of benefits. We gave this example of say both plans pay 80% for a $200 filling. Primary would pay $160 and secondary would pay the remaining $40. And on the podcast, I said $400. So I'm sure that, that probably confused a lot of people how I got $400 from $200.
0: <laughs> you know, there would probably be some happy practices out there uh, if you didn't have to send it back. Uh, yeah,
1: exactly. I just wanted to make sure that we corrected that. <laughs> hey,
0: not a problem. But let's get into talking about the different types of PPO plans. And we've kind of discussed this a little bit two or three with Dr. Blair and we were discussing that, but not all PPO plans are created equally and understanding which type of plan that you're working with is going to identify what rules they go by. We've got fully insured plans and we've got self-funded plans. So what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So really these are important because we have a couple of questions that we need to answer. So we need to know who makes the decisions regarding coverage usual and customary fees, and how plans coordinate. When can I expect to get paid?
0: So who does make those decisions? What factors into that?
1: So to answer that question, we really need to know uh, what laws each of these plans follow. So for self-funded plans, they are going to follow federal law under ERISA, And in this case, the employer is the one that's actually going to be making all of the decisions regarding coverage and usual and customary fees and coordination of benefits. And they do that through something called the plan document. So this is not the summary plan description or the benefit summary that we're all used to seeing and looking at. Not the little
0: 15-page thing. This is like a 200-page document. Got some meat to it.
1: It's a great read, right?
0: Oh, yeah. That's what I read to put myself to sleep at night.
1: (laughs) Only nerds like us, I guess, really get into that. But um, So the patient is really the only one that can uh, request a copy of this, and they can do that through their employer or through the Employee Benefits Security Administration since the employer is going to be making all the rules, these coordination of benefit policies vary greatly. They can be anything, right? There's no federal law in place that actually requires self-funded plans to even establish an order how claims should be paid, or that even allows secondary plans to reduce payments so that the combined benefits from all these plans doesn't exceed that full practice fee on the claim form.
0: So really, when we're talking about self-funded plans, it's really the wild, wild west out there. It's a little crazy, but what about fully insured plans?
1: So fully insured plans are a little different. They're going to follow state law through the state insurance commissioner in the state that the plan was actually sold. The employer has no control over the plan limitations or exclusions, only the payer, aka the insurance company does. So reimbursement then is going to be controlled by the insurance contract. And this is usually something that can be found on each individual payer's website through that password protected portal.
0: Okay. So those fully insured plans, they're following state laws, whereas self-funded plans are Following federal law, but their laws are pretty broad, and there's a whole lot of personal interpretation by the employer themselves as to how they want their plan written. What about when a provider can expect payment?
1: So then to answer this question, we need to know who is actually making the payments. So for these self-funded plans, those claim payments actually come from a trust account that is funded by the employer 100%, something that they're typically putting money into every 90 days. These are gonna be your big plans, your larger employers, like your Amazons and your Googles and your Walmarts.
0: Deep pockets.
1: The ones that have the money, right? For these specific plans, there's actually no time frame at all requiring them to pay claims within a, a certain amount of time. The only thing they have to do is acknowledge that they've received the claim within a reasonable amount of time. And that's usually around 90 days.
0: That's crazy that they don't have a defined period that they've got to pay this. They really have all the time they want to take. They just have to let you know they got it.
1: Right, which can cause a big problem, right? So if you are dealing with coordination of benefits in these dual policies, if your primary plan is a self-funded plan, that could be, really impact your ability to meet that timely filing requirement for your secondary plan.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really true. That could really cause some problems. What about fully insured plans?
1: For fully insured plans, the insurance company or the payer is actually 100% responsible for those claim payments in exchange for uh, those premiums that are going to be paid by the insurer or the beneficiary.
0: All right, so the payer being the insurance company itself, not the employer, the employing company.
1: Exactly. These are the types of plans that are purchased by like an individual or these small businesses that don't have those deep pockets <laughs> to fund their own plans. So some states have laws Pertaining to the timeframe that claims need to be paid for these fully insured plans, depending on whether states have adopted the uh, NAIC coordination of benefits model and which version they've adopted, they may or they may not have laws in place requiring plans to coordinate benefits. Yeah,
0: we talked about that last time about how there's really no standard set the most recent NAIC, I believe it was 2012. Is that what you said? And not all companies have adopted that.
1: Right. They haven't. It's it's highly recommended. They don't have to, right? It's up to the state.
0: Yeah. It's probably going to do what's best for their bottom line, I bet. So what about some general rules of thumb for PPOs when dealing with coordination of benefits?
1: So rule number one would be when treatment is performed by an in-network provider, then the patient actually receives the benefit of the plan with that lowest contracted fee. So if the total that's paid by both plans is less than the lowest contracted fee, the patient's going to be responsible for the difference.
0: Dr. Blair puts it as if if you had a coupon and you had a coupon for a dollar off and you had a coupon for $2 off, the person's always going to use the $2 coupon. That's what this is. If you've got plans that have multiple, you're going with that lowest contracted fee, whatever's best for that patient's pocket. But notice if you're out of network, you can charge your full fee and you can collect the difference from that patient. We're talking about just when you're participating in a PPO.
1: Yeah, right. You're not limited by that contract.
0: So, but what happens if the provider is contracted with one plan, but not with another plan?
1: So they can actually keep up to That full practice fee that's submitted on the claim form from insurance, but they can only charge the patient the in-network contracted fee.
0: So even if they're out of network with one of the plans, they still have to abide by those rules with the one plan that they are in-network with. What if the provider is contracted with both primary and secondary plans?
1: So they can still collect up to the full practice fee that's submitted on that claim form But again, they can only charge the patient the lowest contracted fees, whether you're in network with one plan or both of them.
0: So just to clarify, the final amount the provider is paid is always determined by the secondary payer. Basically, the primary is going to pay exactly what they would have paid regardless of the patient having an additional insurance. And then the secondary is going to coordinate benefits and figure out what their part should be, whether it be a great amount or nothing at all. So what are the general rules for secondary plans?
1: So if a secondary is one of these self-funded plans, so federally regulated, then the coordination of benefits follows the provisions that are going to be outlined in that plan document. And then if secondary is one of the fully insured plans, then coordination of benefits is going to follow that state law in the state that the plan was sold. If secondary is a federal plan that is not self-funded, then the coordination of benefits are still going to follow the federal laws that are very unique and specific to that plan type.
0: Just as an aside, fee capping laws. That's one of the things you feel like if you've got fee capping laws in your state that you don't ever have to worry about fee capping happening, but that's only going to apply if those state laws apply to the plan. Those fully insured plans are going to be under those laws, but the self-funded plans... They don't have to abide by those state laws. So fee capping still matters.
1: Right. So self-funded plans that are federally regulated through ERISA, they're exempt from the state fee capping legislation.
0: Yeah. So pay attention. So those are some great rules of thumb. Let's talk about non-covered services. That's a service for which no payment is provided under the terms of the dental benefit contract or insurance policy.
1: Right. Most dentists are usually going to be contracted with one uh, or more multiple uh, dental networks. So as an in-network provider, they're contractually obligated to accept the network's contracted fee as payment in full, and they have to write off that difference between the allowable fee and their full practice fee. Most of these payer contracts require that all fees that are charged to the patient be reported on the claim, even if the procedure isn't covered by the plan.
0: So you're talking about tooth whitening, and you still have to turn that stuff in. You still have to report it if it was a charge to the patient.
1: Exactly. While some of these payer contracts may allow the provider to bill the patient their full practice fee for some of these non-covered services, others are going to limit that fee, and that's what we refer to as fee capping.
0: That's what we just discussed about that, and there are 40 states right now that have passed that legislation about the fee capping, but again, state laws only apply to the fully insured plans, not the self-funded plans.
1: Yeah, exactly. Again, if a a provider is in network with a self-funded plan, they're contractually obligated to honor the network fees and required to write off the difference between the plan's fees and their full practice fee.
0: So that's really an important thing to know. Exactly. You need to know whether you're self-funded or whether you're fully insured.
1: Right. And so we always get this question, how do I know? (laughs) So most of these self-funded plans can be identified by looking at the patient's insurance card or that summary plan description. So if you see something that says administered by or administrative services only by, chances are that's going to be a self-funded plan. Or if you see that claims should be sent to an administrator, a management or TPA, chances are that's gonna be a self funded plan. And Third if not party
0: administrators. Right. So that's that's meaning they're just doing the paperwork. They're the go between for the deep pockets of the employer and paying out these claims. So they're just doing the claim and they're getting paid a little bit for each claim that they process. Exactly. So understanding the difference between a self-funded plan and fully insured plan, it's super critical. Insurance companies more times than not get it right, but they aren't perfect. Sometimes mistakes do happen. So that said, let's take a minute and talk about overpayments. From what you and I have talked about, when a practice is wondering whether or not they've received an overpayment, a true overpayment, the answer is almost always no.
1: no. (laughs) So you have not received an overpayment unless... The total payment from all payers exceeds that full practice fee that's been submitted on the claim form.
0: Yeah, a lot of practice actually send that money back and it really belongs to them because you can keep up your practice's full fee as long as it was the fee that you reported. So keep that money. That does not go back. It's not an overpayment. That actually belongs to you.
1: Right. So some secondary plans actually will coordinate up to their allowable fee if it's higher than the primary's allowable fee. So it's always important to remember to report that full practice fee on the claim form because your secondary plan may come back and they may actually coordinate up to that amount.
0: That's awesome. So we talked about the rules of thumb for coordination of benefits. What are some rules of thumb for these overpayments?
1: So again, always report that full practice fee on your claim form. And always require the patient to assign benefits, the secondary benefits to the practice. So some plans actually won't allow payments to be sent to an out-of-network provider, but some do. So don't just assume that payments are always going to go to the patient. It's really important to require the patient to assign benefits to the practice because it's going to save you time and resources spent on chasing down payments from patients.
0: Absolutely. We often hear questions also about what fee should be posted to the ledger. What's your opinion on this?
1: So it depends. It's really kind of practice specific. So some practices really prefer to post the contracted fee to the ledger. And while it increases the likelihood of needing to make adjustments when you're calculating coordination of benefits, for some practice management softwares, it actually provides better reporting options. And it really helps improve that overall patient experience. You're able to provide a clear picture of what a patient's true out-of-pocket expense is going to be when you're doing your treatment plan.
0: On the flip side, now, some practices like to post the full practice fee to the ledger. So what are some reasons that that would make more sense?
1: Okay, so this is big. It really, really minimizes those potential errors when you're making ledger adjustments for multiple plans. As far as those treatment estimates go, some of these practices may not actually use the treatment planning option in their software. Some practices have their own form that they like to use. And then in some of the softwares, this is really the only way to track the full extent of those insurance write-offs to the practice.
0: Which is good to know. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So if you're always posting the PPO fee to the ledger and making adjustments from there, Depending on what software you have, it may not have those reporting capabilities to accurately reflect the difference between the PPO fee and the full practice fee on top of those ledger adjustments, which practices are going to need to know in order to calculate that true cost of network participation to the practice.
0: So the best practice is to always consider the needs of the practice and the patients before deciding which decision to make about how you want to report that, how you want to post that to the ledger. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Do your research, know your options, and do what's best for you.
0: And know your software. Understand what it's capable of because it's going to vary from practice to practice. So what are some rules of thumb about making these adjustments? You're going to have to make these adjustments.
1: Right, Number one, never include deductibles or co-pays when you're making those write-off calculations for dual insurance. Number two, patient responsibility is always the lower contracted fee of all plans, which we talked about earlier. Number three, never post a write-off until all EOBs and payments are received from payers from all payers that are involved, whether you have one insurance, two insurances, three, four. And then remember, you have not received an overpayment unless the total of all of those payments that are received exceeds the full practice fee that was reported on each claim form.
0: Which is, again, another reason to always put the full practice fee on the claim form when you're submitting it for reimbursement.
1: Every single time.
0: (laughs) Well, Tiffany, this has been very informative. We've covered a lot of material, and I think we've got a really good grasp on the basic rules of thumb of coordination of benefits. I've loved having you on. Next time, we've got another guest that we're going to have on board and another discussion. i look forward to that as well. So please tune in for the next episode of the Dental Code Advisor podcast. It has been a pleasure participating with each one of you today. Talk to you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Practice Booster, an eAssist publishing company. To learn more, visit DentalCodeAdvisor.com.